This time loop thing. How did you get out of it? Oh, I simply boosted the circuits and broke free. And you came back of your own accord? Well, I... Doctor? No. No, I'm afraid not. Now, obviously, the Time Lords have programmed the TARDIS always to return to Earth. It seems that I'm some kind of a galactic yo-yo. to Galactic Yo-Yo, the podcast where Doctor Who fans share their unpopular opinions with the world and I have to deal with them. I'm your host, Molly Marsh, and I'm just going to close the window because there is a power generator outside my flat at the moment um, due to some roadworks, and it is making the loudest noise all day and all night, um, so that's, that's a whole lot of fun. Um, this week on the podcast, I spoke to, well, it was actually two weeks ago, um, but I'm releasing it uh, this week, um, I spoke to um, Joy Piedmont, um, co-host and co-producer of the Reality Bomb Doctor Who podcast and also of um, Five Years Rapid um, as well, um, another Doctor Who podcast. I spoke to her about her work in the, in the world of Doctor Who podcasting, I spoke to her about her life in Doctor Who, and she also shared... Um, a pretty personal take with me on the the timeless children. I'm not going to spoil it um, for you actually. I'm just going to let you discover it. But I will say that it is probably one of the most interesting and enlightening and fascinating conversations I've had on the podcast so far. Um, I hope that you guys enjoy um, the the conversation as much as I did. Um, it was really interesting to talk about um, the ways in which Doctor Who and and regeneration and the Doctor's character um, influence the way different people feel about their own identities. Um, it was, yeah, it was really great. It was also really great to um, get to speak to a fellow Doctor Who podcaster about what it's been like um, making podcasts in lockdown, what the, their experience is like of making Doctor Who podcasts in general. That was, that was just really nice to hear um, somebody else's viewpoint on that. Um, I think that's everything uh, in terms of the introduction to this chat. Um, I've been going quite ham on the guest search, um, so I've got quite a few. I've got one podcast already recorded um, after this one, and then I've got a bunch of other guests that I've booked dates in with um, or um, have confirmed uh, their involvement, and I'm so excited about all of them. So um, plenty more Galatios to yo-yos to enjoy. Uh, across the rest of the summer but for now without further ado here is my conversation with joy piedmont enjoy 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 joy her name is joy and i've asked you to enjoy Uh, so this is a funny thing that is only funny to me maybe but every time i get a skype call i hover over the red hang up button Every time, because it's all—it's the furthest to the right, and for yeah. some reason, I'm always like, "Wait, is that the one?" 
it's it's become less and less intuitive over the years, Skype, and I can see why uh, most of the world has switched over to to Zoom. Um, <laughs> maybe I should start <laughs> recording these on Zoom. I don't know. Just oh, also, um, number one question is how do I pronounce your surname? Oh, it's Piedmont. I thought so, but I wasn't sure if it was Piedmont. Uh, so no, I, uh, I mean it's yeah, I mean it's spelled Piedmont, but it's like a Piedmont, like the region in Italy. Oh, that says a lot about my Italian geography knowledge or lack thereof. Nah, it's not like <laughs> I think. I, I think most people, well, New Yorkers, so which is where I, I'm from and uh-huh. I've grown up my entire life. People don't necessarily know that um, unless they are Italian American. Right, right. Which I am not, but um, <laughs> I was. Uh, for a time uh, with someone who was. And so that's how I have that surname. And I just kept it because for you. like okay. publishing pur- purposes and various things, that it's a sense. better surname than what I had growing up, um, which we can get into actually uh, in the conversation. But uh, anyway, so people don't necessarily know. And sometimes people have said like, what, what is that? Like ethnically, is it English? Cause it sounds like kind of vaguely English. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's, it's a word in English, mm, but mm. like a Piedmont is like a small foothill, but it's right. not, it's not anything. And that was a long answer to a dumb question <laughs> that I did not need to answer. Well, my, my surname is, dumb, but... <laughs> my, my surname is Marsh and yeah, every so often I remember what a marsh is and what I'm named after, uh, and it's not a great thing to be named after, is it? Well, um, well, marshes are part of a thriving ecosystem. I mean, they're a vital part of the ecosystem, but they're also kind of depressing to look at. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, I should probably introduce you uh, to the listeners properly. I'm here with uh, Joy Piedmont. Uh, uh, hello, Joy. Hello. Thanks for having me. No problem, no problem. Um, so you're over in New York right now, so it's the, it's the sort of early afternoon for you, right? It is. I always do the time chat. It, when, whenever I'm with anybody who's the other side of the world, I have to do the time chat, and I know it's boring, but I do it anyway. <laughs> no, it's great. I think it's a good demonstration of the global reach of the show. I did a segment for um, my podcast once where I had people, um, my guests were in four different time zones. Wow. Yeah, it was it was kind of fun actually. I mean, there there were multiple time zones within the U.S. itself, right? Uh, yeah. Now now I'm gonna sound incredibly uh, ignorant. I think there's four. Okay, I would <laughs> I certainly wouldn't know. So uh, I think there's four. I'm yeah. gonna believe you. So you uh, you just <laughs> mentioned your podcast, um, Reality Bomb. Um, yes. Could you sort of explain to the listeners a little bit um, how that works, what it is? Um, how it started and 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 uh, what it involves. Yeah, so Reality Bomb is a magazine style podcast, uh, and so we do uh, like three to four segments each episode. It's monthly, and so we'll have an A segment that usually like when the show is running, it's something that's just a straight up review. So mm-hmm. we have like mm-hmm. a panel of guests who review the episodes. Uh, there'll be a B segment that's maybe something a little bit more, more related to an evergreen um, or topical issue. 
in and around fandom or Doctor Who fandom generally, um, there's a sketch. Um, and then my co-producer and I uh, take turns. It's There's no real formula to it, but basically one of us each month does an editorial to to end out the the show. And so that's kind of just on whatever's on our minds about fandom at the moment. Uh, and Reality Bomb started in, I think, 2014. Right. Um, it's been around for a while, but I didn't come on board to co-produce until 2017, 20, late 2017, whenever Dr. Mysterio came out, because a review panel of that was my first segment. <laughs> yeah, so that was Christmas 2016, I think. So yeah, it would have been, would have been early 2017 or late, late 2016, I guess. There you go. Um, and I had been a guest on Reality Bomb um, a few times, and then Graham just asked like if I would like to come aboard as a co-producer his uh, founding co-producer was moving on to do different life things and so I've been with the show since then it's quite different to any other Doctor Who podcast out there really isn't it that that format you've just described yeah it's a little bit more labor intensive that's what Uh, I was gonna say I mean I'm not surprised that it's that it's monthly rather than rather than fortnightly or weekly yeah it, and, it's impressive I mean, that you I, even managed to do it monthly, really. <laughs> well, that's why there's two of us. Um, and uh, thank you. That I, I appreciate that. And I will pass that on to Graham because he takes a lot of pride in the production of the show um, and does a far more work on the mixing uh, post-production end of it. Mm-hmm. I generally um, kick around ideas and edit my own segments. But beyond that, he's kind of like the, the guru of putting it all together. Uh, but... Yeah, we spend a little bit more time editing, I would say, than other people. Occasionally, we've done kind of like more ambitious documentary style episodes. Um, after Series 11, we just called a bunch of fans. So we talked to about 50 people from around the world and then Crikey. mushed that down into an episode that was just capturing like, here's what some fans of Doctor Who think about the show this year, uh, which was really fun, but labor really... intensive for sure, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where you think it sounds like a great idea when you come up with it. And then as you're in the middle of it, you think, why am I doing this? Well, this is a conversation I had recently with um, Max Curtis. Have you heard um, his new podcast, um, Base Under Siege? I haven't listened yet. I saw that he's done it and I'm so excited to listen. It is so extraordinary. But as you're listening, you're, you're just thinking in your head about how much work it, it must have been to make it. It sounds sort of like... The best way of describing it is that it sort of sounds like serial or S Town or something. The way he, mm. the way he presents it, and the way it, he introduces the various interviews and stuff. But yeah, it's it's a it's a lot of work, and I imagine it's it's similar with with what you guys do. That's a podcaster's brain listening, isn't it? <laughs> right. It totally is. Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah, I was listening as somebody who makes a podcast, and I'm like, I'm thinking, whoa, yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's that would take a while. <laughs> So this is why I so I, I used to make this podcast weekly, and it just got too mm. it just got too stressful because I'm the only person who works on it, and yeah. I was just like, I'm I'm gonna move it to fortnightly, and now I take longer breaks between batches of episodes as well because it's yeah it's it was too much work, um, and that's fine right that's fine because you're doing this for yourself exactly, and and I kind of ended up thinking well. You know the the other option is getting burned out and then stopping doing it, which is which would be infinitely worse. So, um, right, I had to. Uh, yeah, I thought I'd space the episodes out a bit more in, in instead. Um, yeah, I'm just to add there was definitely something else I wanted to ask you about the 
reality po- podcast. Oh, that was it. So I was reading on the on the podcast website. It, it kind of tells the story of how the website, uh, how the podcast came about, and and the fact that Graham had noticed that there weren't really any Doctor Who podcasts that were in a format that that he would choose to listen to, and that's how he invented this reality bomb format. Do you mm. think that because um, you know a, a time moves much more quickly in on the internet do you think that since 2014 when the podcast started the, the world of doctor who podcasting has changed at all or do you think it's kind of uh, it's still a similar environment oh no it's so different oh my gosh it is so so different and probably the rate of change matches the rate of change in podcasting overall like if you were listening you. to podcasts back in 2005 it was I'm, i remember i used to download um Roger Ebert and uh, oh god I forget his oh Richard Roper they did a movie review show that aired on TV every week they just straight up lifted the audio for that and put it out as a podcast like that was the level of thinking behind Mm -hmm, podcasting mm -hmm. back then Um, it it was more of an extension of something else than than a genre in and of itself exactly like let's just straight up report the news have like some panel discussions Mm -hmm. and you know, I think a lot of Doctor Who podcasting still is a roundtable discussion of, you know, two to any number of people talking about whatever topic that interests them. Yeah. But we have so many more shows now that are doing a lot of different things and taking a look at the show from so many different angles. I mean, I think yours is a great example, right? Taking, you know, each fan's opinion uh, every every two weeks. Sure. And- I think, yeah, I think you've got to have an angle now. Do you know what I mean? Like the the whole mm. the, the the general discussion has its place, but I think that market is very saturated. Um, and yeah, you've, if you're going to start a podcast about Doctor Who or about anything, it's it's very much got to have a USB now. Yeah, and we you know then you also have shows like um, my friend Tom Dickinson hosts The Moment. I don't know if you've heard. Um, oh, I haven't heard of that. No, it's kind of it's it's similar, I guess, in in framework because each episode he talks to an individual fan about a moment that they just can't get out of their head from oh, wow that Doctor sounds fantastic i must check that it's out it's really fun yeah and he 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 edits the hell out of it um and it sounds so amazing and uh as a i guessed it on the show in season one and I said, uh, oh, good luck editing this because we kind of had a really rambly conversation. He said, no, 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 it's fine. And he manages to take like 40-minute discussions and boil them down into these nice, neat little 25-minute um, episodes that make everybody sound very smart, much smarter than you felt recording. <laughs> That's always a nice feeling, isn't it? Yeah. I find that when I edit these podcasts, I'm mostly editing myself out of them. <laughs> because <laughs> it's usually me going, oh, I sound a bit cringeworthy there, or that's a bit embarrassing, or I, d- I don't know whether I, I necessarily think about the, the guest that I'm speaking to too much, but uh, hopefully they're satisfied with it as well. You also I make another podcast. Um, I do. Called Five Five Years Rapid, right? That is correct. Um, so my friend Kyle Anderson and I uh, have been watching the John Pertwee years, and it's also a monthly and every month, we our episode is about a John Pertwee story, and we're going in order. Right now, we just recorded our Sea Devils episode, and that will come out uh, first Friday of the month, so in a couple weeks, or a weekish. What is time? I don't even know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, and we're rolling along. We're about halfway through now, actually. So uh, it's it's been a lot of fun, just kind of re 
um, revisiting these stories and, and frankly, being able to talk, talk about them with a friend. Um, cause sometimes, you know, we watch Dr. Who in isolation and mm. don't get to unload all of our thoughts Definitely, immediately yeah. after. Yeah. And, and so that's been real fun. And what, what was it about the, the Pertwee era that made you and Kyle want to start a, a podcast specifically discussing that era? Well, it was Kyle's idea, and I don't know if he necessarily ever had like a a pitch or a, a thesis behind why Pertwee, but we both really like John Pertwee as a classic era doctor. And I think it's also really a weird time in the show's history when you can extract Pertwee and it's its own thing um, because the show is just so different structurally in terms of, I mean, especially in that first season of his where he doesn't go anywhere. He's, he's earthbound. He's with unit. He has a home base and a family in many ways. It's a little bit more serialized than the show has ever been mm. up to that point. So it's this kind of funny, funky time and Pertwee's a very different doctor. So there were just a lot of reasons to do it, but also we just think he's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, the Pertwee era, especially the start of the era, was kind of just a just an excuse to make a backdoor uh, different show. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Like it's not. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a Doctor Who in name only. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is which is kind of interesting. Yeah, what's that experience like of um of making double podcasts and um spreading yourself against two uh different kinds of podcasts with different feels and different focuses that's a really good question I think it's easy for me to do because I don't do any of the mixing or editing for five years rapid Kyle Mm. is Mm. uh really generously offered to just edit all of the episodes because when we were figuring out what we wanted to do with it I said you know we could do like trade off month to month like you edit one I'll edit one he was like nah that's okay he's like I'm fine editing all of them uh which I am happy for him to do because I don't necessarily like feel uh, an intense need to control that aspect of the show. It's just really fun for me to talk to him about Pertwee. And uh, so we record once a month-ish. We front-loaded a lot of the recordings. So um, because I'm a teacher, I have a lot more time in the summer. And so we recorded a a ton of episodes in advance of actually launching, which gave us a little bit of uh, wiggle room and lead time. So that's like very low-key commitment. And Gaudi Bomb, the kind of beauty of it is that we're kind of always producing reality bomb. Uh, Graham and I, most most of our conversation is just bouncing around ideas for segments. You know, who should we use for this? Um, who do you know? Do you know anyone who is interested in this specific aspect of Doctor sure. Who that I'm, you know? And uh, and then the recording, it's just, then it's just for a scheduling challenge mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. trying to make sure you get everyone together. Um, and so it's not a huge time commitment, but it's, definitely more labor intensive than I think maybe, well, certainly more labor intensive than five years rapid. And actually, uh, throughout the pandemic, Graham and I have been doing these, um, live shows over zoom because we didn't want to do as much work (laughs) because we're both fried and tired and did not want to have that challenge of editing the show as we normally do. And so it's been really fun. We basically just do it um, kind of like we do our live shows when we do live shows in person. So we just have a bunch of different segments and a quiz and, uh, or, you know, game of some sort. 
and a sketch, and we just used the same four panelists uh, for each show, for within each show. We ha we've had a bunch of different guests um, come on and, and serve as panelists, and uh, it's been really nice because it's a lot less pressure um, and just really fun to kind of feel like you get to hang out with your friends and talk about Doctor Who for a little while. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really fun. I, I kind of feel, felt the same about podcasting, um, you know, during the pandemic, in the in the the height of the lockdown, I started to feel kind of guilty for for not making any podcasts. I was thinking, oh well, this is the best time to be putting podcasts out there. Everybody's got nothing to do, um, but I just I just didn't have the energy. The pandemic was was yeah. such an ex exhausting thing to be living through, um, and it's only as the lockdown restrictions have eased and life's become a little bit easier here in the UK that I felt able to um, to start podcasting again properly. Um, mm. I think that's okay, right? Oh, it makes total sense because it's it's a lot of energy that you're putting out into this and into making the show and reaching out to guests and trying mm -hmm. to you know figure out uh, when you're gonna be able to fit people in and then also the research that you have to do. It's so much work that uh, I think I think it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking, well, everything is shut down. I have no other plans. Sure. I should be doing more, but it's stressful to live through this time and it's okay to not do as much. <laughs> D definitely. And I'd got myself in a, in a, in a pattern, um, you know, in the before times of always making podcasts in person. And that is mm. a very different, uh, you know, atmosphere. And it was something I've become used to. And I've had to really shift my focus back to my old style of podcasting, which was using the computer. And I was kind of worried about it because I, had kind of dismissed this this dynamic as inorganic and not as good mm. as, as the in-person dynamic. And sure, it would probably be better if you and I were sitting in the same room right now. However, it's been really great to be able to speak to people from all over the world. Do you think that when things start to open up again and you can like go out and meet people in person, will you do a mixture of the two different um, formats or yeah. models? I, I think I'll do a mixture. So I think I, I'll continue to meet people in person where that's possible. So if they live in or nearby London. Um, but I think I will make sure I make space for guests from the US or from you know Canada or Australia or whatever. Um, mm. Or, you know, wherever else who who can't necessarily um, come meet me in person for a podcast. And I, yeah, I think that's a, a, a positive thing that I've learned from this. Oh, that's great. I really like that. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about how you got into Doctor Who um, mm. originally then, Joy. How did, how did that happen? Uh, so my origin story is, wow, it's actually getting further and further away now that I think about it. Uh, so I started watching Doctor Who in 2012, uh, around this time in the summer. So my eight-year anniversary has passed now. I, I'm a teacher, and I work in a high school. In 2012, I was new at a high school in downtown New York where the kids are very, very nerdy. And, you know, this is the time that Doctor Who was very, very popular in the U.S. Um, and airing on BBC America. And so my kids just would not shut up about it, talking about <laughs> it constantly. And I had not seen the show to that point. I, I was vaguely aware of its existence. Like, it was on sci-fi, I think, when I was in college. Um, and, 
I I worked briefly at Entertainment Weekly, and uh, one of the writers had a had a little Dalek cookie jar on her desk. So there, I, I knew of it. I just wasn't watching it. And the kids kept badgering me. They were like, "Oh, you've got to watch Doctor Who. You've got to watch it. You're you're a nerd. You'll like this." Uh, and I was like, "Yeah, that sounds like a big commitment." <laughs> <laughs> it is a it is a an intimidating back catalogue of episodes, isn't it? <laughs> well, can you imagine now? I mean, because back then, I think yes, series seven hadn't even started yet. Right. <laughs> so right. I was like six seasons of tv kids come on <laughs> and um, that's without even without even thinking about anything pre-2005 i know and wow. they, they they kept saying oh but it's not a big deal you can do it um so i had been binge watching friday night lights and as soon as i finished that it was around summertime school was let out i started doctor who and did that initial thing where i was like i watched rose i, I thought oh this is great i really like this you know watched um end of the world the yeah, next night yeah. and was like ah, this is really good but then slowly i think somewhere in the middle of uh, that first series i just could not watch only one i had to watch at least like two or three um every time i sat down to watch the show and by september uh i was mostly caught up i think that the first episode i watched in real time with the actual um, day and date of broadcast might have been either dinosaurs on a spaceship or town called mercy it was it was one of the two um so yeah it was it was kind of a whirlwind summer of discovering this crazy show and you know from there i just got more and more into the show itself and started listening to podcasts and started watching classic who and started going to conventions it rolls on and, you never and look here back. I am today. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I love it. I love the idea of you just exponentially watching more and more episodes in one go and, and, and eating up that series over the summer. I love that. <laughs> it's um it feels like I don't know, feels like the binge watch model. Yeah, I, I'm kind of always interested in, in people's stories when they when they've discovered the show you know, after after six or seven new who seasons have aired, because for me, I was I was I've always been watching along with real time, so mm. I've it's sort of it was been sort of like watching a child grow up. Like I, you don't notice they've grown until you look at you know you look back at photos of them when they were younger, and that's what it's been a bit like with Doctor Who. You don't know notice Aww. how different the Capaldi era really is from the Eccleston or Tennant eras until you go back and watch some Eccleston and Tennant stuff and you're like, blimey, like the show's really invisibly moved on over that time. So what mm. was it like for you watching it in such quick succession and kind of getting to see that kid grow up really quickly? Did you did you still yeah. have that disconnect or, or were you like... A little yeah, bit. I don't know. A little bit, yeah. I, I'm not the kind of fan who who watched, you know, that those first few series and thought, oh, these effects are terrible. Like, I'm, I'm not a snob when it comes to uh, stuff like that, because I'll pretty much watch anything. And uh, it was more like, wow, look at the quality. Um, look at the money on the screen, <laughs> which is usually where my brain goes when I see uh, shows start to look better. And it started to sound better because Murray Gold got more... Um, musicians basically he got musicians yeah. uh and could write more and so watching the show level up you know each time i think 
it was it was easy to track how it was evolving because I was doing it so quickly. Um, it didn't make that transition jarring, which I think you might think it would be if you were watching really fast, but because it, this, those changes are really happening season to season. It's kind of like how I feel when, uh, you know, we go away for winter break and we come back and the kids are a little taller. They're not so different from the way they were before, but you can tell Got that you. they're a little older. Got you. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I guess the, the only, the, the only, um, switcheroo like that, that, that is really big is the end of end of Davies era start of Moffat era change but I, mm. I always wonder whether that seems so big to me because I know it's there where I, mm. I wonder whether fans would uh, people who who don't have that foreknowledge would would notice as much I don't know I uh, I can't remember if it was on series five or six now, but the one thing that I noticed about the transition between those two eras was, unfortunately, BBC America, I think it was BBC America, I'm not sure, the, for American audiences, they added this little preamble in the credits oh, about... Oh yeah, no, I've seen this, so this is on Ugh. series six on UK Netflix, um, we get this as well, and it, it's oh, really annoying. No. <laughs> oh, I hate it, I hate it, and... When I was uh, a little girl, I had an imaginary uh, friend, that one. Yeah. yeah. And that was really noticed that like that was the thing where I was like, wow, why are you I've been watching this show. I don't need any of this. Yeah, I think it's because because it, it knew at that point that it had this new American audience and they were trying to do all they could for that. I don't know. Um, that, maybe that's yeah, it why. definitely seemed designed for the fan, not even the fan, but it seemed designed for people to drop in and, you know, find an episode and feel like they had a grounding. But it makes no sense when you're watching on Netflix to every episode get this preamble. It's like, okay, I know, I get it. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's really, really, really odd. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So, so my girlfriend is not a Doctor Who fan. She obviously watched the show a lot, um, you know, from from growing up when it's been on, and she's watched it more um, since she's been with me. But she's not a fan in any way. And I was watching um, a few months back. I was watching a YouTube compila compilation of clips from. Um, from all across New Who, from Eccleston all the way through to Whitaker, and she didn't notice the change from Davies to Moffat. She said that she didn't really, she wasn't able to point out any any change in feel or tone mm. just from those clips. But it was when we went to Whitaker, it was the music she said that made it feel really different. Oh, that's so interesting. I mean, I I think that's a really that's a really great observation because the music is very very different. Uh, and I think if you're someone who's maybe a little bit more sensitive um, to audio, mm. that's definitely going to be the thing that you notice. I know I have, I have friends who are camera nerds and, you know, in that first shot of series 11, oh, I'm terrible with numbers, series 11, uh, everyone every one of my camera nerd friends was like, oh, look at the look at the lenses that they're using. Yeah. It looks so beautiful. It does look and so different. Like, okay yeah I, I see that it looks different it's obviously a noticeable difference but not one that i felt as dramatically as some other people mm, mm. i think i probably noticed the music more than the than the visuals mm, um, yeah same yeah sega nakanola's music is very very different to, to murray gold's um mm. yeah it's it's been more slightly more melodic and more uh broadly drawn out in series 12 than in series 11 though i think 
Yeah, I think a little bit. I th- he definitely does a lot more like ambient mood setting, mm-hmm. whereas I feel like Murray Gold does a lot of highlighting of yeah. moments. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the people's main criticism of Murray Gold is that he tells you what to feel. And I think mm. there's some truth to that, but also his music is obviously brilliant and um, is very singable, isn't it? Where where, it is. where Sega yeah. Nakanola's isn't this, you know, for all its other merits, Sega Nakanola's music isn't very singable. Mm-mm. Yeah, um, I I can see that for sure. Yeah, should we get, should we talk about unpopular opinions, Joey? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Great. So you came to me with a with a Chris Chibnall era opinion, and I'm I was a little bit wary because. Um, as I said to you in in our email conversation, I'm I kind of at the moment I'm trying to stay away from the the current era, you know when it's not on telly, um, mm. because I've been quite critical of it on the podcast and I don't want to turn into a stuck record. But y- your specific take I found really interesting and really striking, so I thought yeah let's talk about it. Um, so yeah, could you could you repeat it for the listeners, please? Sure. Uh- it's it's less of an unpopular opinion as it's and okay. More the, of the, the, my definition <laughs> of unpopular opinion has has become so ludicrously broad. Uh, to as, I mean, that's good. Yeah, to me, good. it just means nothing uh, now. <laughs> it's a meaningless phrase. Well, I I do like the idea of it being an unpopular opinion in some sense because it it's basically an idea, a reading of the show that I have um, that I really have not seen anyone else. Um, write about or mm-hmm. talk about uh, really at all. I mean, it's only been a few months since the episodes aired, but anyway. So, uh, when I was watching uh, Ascension of the Cybermen and the Timeless Child, I really do not remember which goes first. I am sorry. <laughs> um, wait, it's Ascension of the Ascension yeah, of the Cybermen is, uh, yeah, is first, is first. And, then, and then the Timeless Children, yeah. Um, Ascension I thought was really interesting. Anytime there's a story that involves children being adopted. I my my spidey sense goes up a little bit because I'm adopted, and so that whole sequence with Brendan, uh, the you know being a little foundling and growing up with this family who takes him in and and becoming you know a cop, that was all super intriguing to me, and I really was very excited to see where that was going to go, because it's. It's a story, it's a kind of story that is very close to to me. And also I feel really protective of the way that people tell those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was super intrigued by the ending of that episode, at least with that specific storyline of, of him getting his memory erased with the the thing that looks very much like a chameleon, yeah, uh, yeah. chameleon arch. <laughs> and so going into the next episode, then I was kind of already primed to be thinking about it Mm -hmm, in that mm -hmm. sense and I feel that whereas a lot of people see the new doctor's history or the doctor's new history as you know a bad retcon or they talk about it as um you know uh this is so tedious or it doesn't fit or right any number of criticisms of it I don't necessarily have a value judgment on it so much as I see it as it's it's an adoption story like the Chris Chibnall wrote um the doctor and adoption story as her origin which I think is fascinating and it works so well as an adoption story it's kind of 
it's so obvious to me that I'm that I'm always a little bit like, wait, how am I the only person that sees this? Because it's just really, really so plain. I mean, the the master when he's narrating this story for the doctor, you know, he has her stuck in the matrix. He says multiple times, Tectune adopted this child, Tectune's adopted child, or refers to mm. um, Tectune as. Um, the child's adopted mother really like it's it's really out there and very obvious uh, the way you are supposed to think about this family structure which didn't need to happen right like uh, no they could yeah they could have have shied away from using such explicit phrases as that couldn't they yeah because I think personally and I would say most people who are adopted who have you know, relationships with their, with the parents who raise them, the parents who raise you are just your parents. Like I don't refer to my parents as my adopted parents, unless I have to make some sort of distinction between them and yeah. uh, my I, biological yeah. parents. I suppose people, yeah, people who later in life have a relationship with their biological parents might then start saying both when they're talking about, do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Um, Cause but, otherwise yeah. why would you need that qualifier there? Yeah, true. Yeah. You wouldn't need that. Would you? I feel like it's a really conscious choice. Um, yeah. Maybe not a conscious choice. I think that it's a it's a choice that points out what this story is to me. Mm. And broadly speaking, when I look at it, I see it as a story about adoption because um, the doctor is a foundling. We don't know where she comes from. Uh, a detail that I had forgotten, but when I was rewatching last night, um, really struck me was that uh, the doctor's found by this gateway on a distant planet, but it's not clear if the doctor is even from that planet or came through the gateway, which is also really mysterious mm. and I, I like uh, to believe that she came through the gateway personally. Mm. Yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, I there's, there's a lot there. Uh, so you have this, this foundling that gets taken in and raised as, you know, this, this Gallifreyan's um, child. And where I started to twig to like, oh, this is something that maybe is going to hit close to home is the way that uh, the narration talks about Tectayun's wanting to understand her adopted child and trying to like do these experiments and and trying to guess at what the, the child's history is. Because um, very often, especially in transnational or transracial adoptions, parents will really seek out to understand their child's origins in ways that the children don't necessarily want. Um, and not that it's against their wishes, but, you know, six-year-olds aren't necessarily thinking, gee, I really want my medical history. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, and maybe this story about the experiments on, on the doctor at the hands of, of Tetayun is a kind of extreme representation of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the doctor being exploited and then having this essence of themselves taken uh, from them to then, you know, become the basis of regeneration. I think that it really also then highlights the doctor's status as an outsider. So I have heard from friends who think that this, this backstory now creates the doctor as a chosen one and special, more special in Time Lord society than anybody else, where I disagree strongly because when I look at this story, 
I can't separate the doctor's experiences as a child, as the timeless child, from who she eventually becomes, the the doctor that we see and we know. Uh, Because that's a continuous line now. And the doctor doesn't know that she's been the basis of all Gallifreyan society. You know, like she, she had no idea of this. She was not raised to feel special. Uh, She was not raised in an environment that held her up in any way. And in fact, I think if we're going to take a look at the entire breadth of Doctor Who history, you know, since 1963, the doctor's an outsider and, you know, says um, in those early episodes, you know, Susan and I, have are cast off from our homes home planet and now we're traveling or the doctor says you know i ran away or you know any various number of excuses that they give that's an outsider who doesn't want to be there that's not a special person she may be special right in that she has a special ability that now the time lords also have Mm. but it's it you know and then chibnall actually writes it into the dialogue the master thinks that this information is going to break her because he says, look at how they used you. And she says, no, you've given me a gift. Like you've now shown me that I am so much more than I ever thought. Because imagine, you know, coming to this information and then realizing like you've actually overcome greater odds than you even could have imagined. And that's hugely, hugely powerful. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I guess I I was always confused about, maybe you could help me with this. I was confused about the master's motivation really for sharing this information with the doctor. I know that in, as you say, in the dialogue, the master claims to, claims to be trying to break her, but it seems like a strange assessment of the doctor to think that this would, do you know what I mean? The master knows the doctor very well and it seems odd to me that he would make that misjudgment of her. Without getting too much down or without going down that road too much, I don't think that the master's motivations are entirely clear. Mm. Just personally, I, I think that it's it's really fuzzy. Uh, if we're taking the character at his word, he wants to destroy her and also feels like this information is a way, like a sick way to bring them closer together. Mm-hmm. Um in in the way that he points out, like, there's a little bit of you in me, and I hate that. Yeah. And I don't know that I buy that from the master, just as a, you know, as a character trait. But he does demonstrate in this story a desire to die. Like, he he's, when he kills the, the lone Cyberman, he thinks, oh, I guess I didn't die i thought i would because i thought i was gonna set off this particle that would have destroyed organic life and he's a little bit disappointed and it it's similar it's almost like you know in the part we years is the thing that kyle and i talk about a lot the master is never content to just destroy the doctor he really needs the doctor to know that he's been beaten and wants to see like the brokenness i mean it's the bond villain thing of telling james bond your plan before you in at the plan, isn't it? It's it, it, exactly. need that. He needs that satisfaction of he of, loves yeah. the gloat. Definitely, yeah. So maybe the, and, maybe that's what it's. Yeah. Maybe he just wanted a reaction from the doctor. Yeah, it's it's a really extreme way of getting attention uh, and <laughs> and uh, faking a kind of like closeness that 
that already is there. Like they're already very close. It's it's very baffling to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely have thoughts about the rest of the writing of this story, but um, yeah, for sure, the, yeah, like yeah, people have all kinds of problems with the, this story, and and you know the the uh, back Tectayune backstory element of it didn't necessarily gel gel with me particularly well on first viewing, but. It's not the part of the story that I that I object the most strongly to at all. You know, I find that right. I find the the whole structure of the story of of the master um, presenting this PowerPoint presentation to the doctor while she stands there <laughs> and does nothing is the story's biggest sin from my point of view. Um, I don't necessarily have an inherent problem with the with the um, the Tectayun backstory. I guess it's interesting um, that you read. Because the the whole idea of of the doctor now being an adoptee, I kind of I didn't necessarily read it as a real world parallel, but more of a. It seemed akin to the kind of stories that superheroes tend to get mm. as their origins, mm-hmm. you know. So superheroes are virtually all orphans, um, mm-hmm. even characters like Harry Potter. Um, yeah. It there's that's always seems to be a motivation for the for the kind of chosen one superhero figure. And that it felt like a, a, an attempt from Chibnall to to do that to the Doctor's origin and ma- maybe make her feel like a superhero a little bit. I can totally see that reading, and I think it's completely valid because I mean, this has been going on in Western storytelling since the time of the Bible. Moses mm-hmm. is an orphan sent down the river and is mm-hmm. adopted. This is. It's an important kind of storytelling because I think it's a way that people try to understand what makes us us. You know, the the question of, is there something about me that is essentially me? And would that still be there even if I was raised on another planet, right? Like if you're Got Superman. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that as people, and I think storytellers are probably really interested in this if they're thinking about identity, the question that, I think Chibnall's probably asking specifically in this, you know, story is like, what makes someone good? Why is the doctor driven to do the things that she does? Mm. And I think that given everything that we see and given the backstory that we learn, this is a way of showing the doctor's essence of being utterly brilliant and using that brilliance to help others and being a wanderer and feeling like an outsider and, you know, bonding quickly with people, making them part of their life really closely. Uh, These are all just essential elements of who the doctor is. And throughout, you know, we've seen multiple regenerations of her being being this kind of person and this story in a way just kind of cements that like kind of writes it into stone whereas i think that you know moffat played around a lot with ideas of like oh the doctor you know uh ran away because he was bored or the doctor ran away because he was afraid of something right like there's there's a lot of different little things that he's he does during his era Mm, to mm. talk about it but well, and also he has the whole thing of well, the doctor isn't real, and the uh, the doctor's yeah. only real because the because it's a it's a promise that he makes, which I is my favorite reading of the doctor. I think it's totally brilliant. Um, right. And that right. yeah, Chibnall's moved away from that a little bit, hasn't he? With this with this new version, I mean, w- even without the 
revelations we get in The Timeless Children, Jodie's Doctor never feels like she's kind of aware of the role she's playing as the Doctor. She She's a more straightforward, less metafictional version of the character, I think. Yeah, well, Jodie is also not... The 13th Doctor is not burdened by their place in the universe in the same way that, like, the 10th Doctor and the 11th Doctor certainly are, um, and the responsibility on their shoulders to hold it all together, because the storytelling just doesn't call for for that mm, kind of crisis. Mm. But I think what this backstory does is show that the decision to be good is definitely, I think it's still a choice because a person who's gone through, or right, anyone who has gone through this emotional turmoil, and I think you can see, right, there's there are lingering elements of those memories in the doctor's mind. Um, it's not all completely erased. And I, I personally believe that bodies hold on to trauma in ways that even if our brains forget something or forget a fact, uh, we can still feel feel the effects of, totally. of that trauma. Yeah, I totally right? agree. And so that's why, to me, it feels less of trying to make the doctor um, a, a super-powered superhero. I mean, because, right, the doctor's already a superhero for all intents and purposes. Uh, but it just... It feels like just a little bit more of an explanation, I guess, of of understanding who the doctor is and and why she does the things that she does. It's hard for me, though, right, because I think that it is very um, I think it is very in line with with the kind of chosen one stories that we're used to. Harry Potter, Luke Skywalker, Superman, the you know, Spider-Man is eventually not raised by um, his own mm-hmm. his own parents. Mm-hmm. But I would argue that in most of those stories, uh, the the orphaned chosen one, it's not, it's a burden and it's like, it's a pain that they have to carry. Mm-hmm. So they're special, but like, I don't know why that's so bad. Cause I guess the word I would use instead of special is like, they're different and they feel different and that's a burden to carry. Definitely, and they're an outsider, right? That's how the doctor, that's how you described mm-hmm. the doctor earlier. Yeah. yeah. I suppose it's interesting um, that Chibnall, yeah, it, it does provide further explanation for the doctor's um, good nature and and, uh, and knack for heroism. But I, I suppose my reservation there would be, well, I've always kind of liked the doctor as a, as a as somebody who's who's like every other aristocrat and is and mm. is and has been mollycoddled like every other ar- aristocrat and then just decides mm. that that he's not going to be like that and and she's not going to be like that and it, it that almost is has greater mythic weight than somebody who was themselves wronged and mm. and is doing do you know what i mean to 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 be acting yeah. out of sympathy is something that is i find more evocative than somebody who's acting out of genuine empathy for pe- for people who are oppressed i i definitely understand that and i guess my question would be then do we 
I don't know that someone who was genuinely brought up in, in a very privileged and um, comfortable position mm. would necessarily go to the lengths that the doctor does. I just, I think that this kind of need to save people and this drive to to wander and to keep finding different places in the world and find community. Uh, yeah. It, it, these feel like the actions of somebody who is doing it to fill something in themselves. And I, I don't, I don't necessarily see a person who is completely cared and taken care of, cared for and taken care of, um, needing that in the same way. You can be a philanthropist and a lot of people are a lot of people who grow up very privileged, then turn around and use their privilege to help others. I don't, I would wonder though, if the, if they did exhibit the same drive and I don't mm. necessarily have a good example of this, but if they did exhibit the same kind of drive and like selflessness and action, if that was coming from some place of like pain. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can reconcile those two readings of, of the character in a way. Mm. And, and, you know, because, because the, the, the actual genuine memories the doctor has are still from their life as, as a person of privilege and a person who didn't know anything about this this strange traumatic past that they've had so maybe oh, i'm maybe so glad you brought that up of subconscious that this influence that that you know that has had on yes their, yeah um i'm so glad you brought this up because this is another element that i thought was also really important so my experience as as an adoptee is that um i i was born in korea and adopted as a baby uh, by white parents in New York. And so I, I really don't know Korea at all. That is not necessarily a culture I'm totally familiar with. Um, I've been, I am trying to, you know, learn more about it as an adult, but I've always known I was adopted because, uh, I look different. Like it's really, it's not a thing you can hide from kids who are a different color from you. If you yeah. are white parents, yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. there's just no way. Right. So I don't have experience with finding out later in life. I do have experience, though, with the struggle to, um, you know, we call it like birth search, whether mm. or not you're going to go looking for answers. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard because the scenarios are you go looking and you find your biological family, somebody from your biological family. Right. Sure. And they don't actually give you the answers that you need mm -hmm. because mm -hmm you don't feel like you belong with them or you don't find that, you know, immediate connection. That's a possibility. I mean, it is a possibility that you do feel that and that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I hear more though about stories of people who, who felt like I looked and I found these people and they're great, but they're not the people who raised me. They're not my family. It's not my home. Yeah. And yeah. Then the most disappointing scenario is you look and you don't find anything or you find uh, your biological family and they don't want to know you there's mm -hmm. it's it's really painful it's a hard hard situation to have to make the choice to to search or not search but what I loved about the doctor's story and finding out um you know in this episode we see her find out that her life is not the life that she thought it was right at a fundamental level. I mean, you know, aside from all the other nonsense of her being used and the division and what is that, you know, the, the doctor is most disturbed by not knowing who she is and feeling like 
well, I everything I knew was wrong. And that's when it takes Ruth, the Ruth incarnation, to come out and say, are you sure about that? Because mm-hmm. it ha- when have you ever been limited by your sense of self, right? Like, and it, Ruth is basically saying to the doctor, like, you have such a strong self sense of self. Why should this information change anything about you? Yeah. Like, it, and that to me is a hugely powerful message and something that speaks to me of like the way that the process that somebody who is adopted would have to go through, right? Like mm. reckoning with what do these answers then say about me as a person? And I think the most healthy conclusion is right it's good to know and the doctor says like this makes me more yeah but it doesn't change who i am yeah yeah that is really powerful yeah and it's and it's powerful from a sort of um metafictional point of view as well in terms of the the boundlessness of the the stories that doctor who can tell that was sort of the silver lining that i chose to to take from it when i Mm. saw it do you know what i mean absolutely yeah um yeah i mean i know I guess maybe, maybe, yeah, it's an interesting one with the Doctor because obviously they've had a, a number of different incarnations and their body has changed so much over time and their and their personality has changed so much over time. So maybe there's a question there of, well, what, well, you know, what do I cling to now as my as my identity? What 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 is uniting all of those different pieces of myself? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think that's probably a, a thing that humans face as well in the real world of we don't regenerate but i've always found regeneration an extremely um comforting and relatable element of the doctor's character i feel like i've regenerated multiple times through my life you know my appearance may not have changed but i mean matt smith says it in time with the doctor we're all different Mm. people all all through our lives Mm -hmm. and i i find that incredibly comforting and it's i think sometimes in life it's about finding that um, that through line, you know, but through all those different bits of you that, that you can, or, or being comfortable with the fact that, that, you know, there isn't a through line necessarily through them all. And, yeah. And you're, and you're nebulous and, and ever changing. I think that's, that's entirely like, uh, yeah, that's entirely how I feel about regeneration also, mm. but it feels like such a great articulation of, of human experience, yeah. even from just the fact of like, right, we go through different stages of life. We're children, then we are teenagers, yeah. then we are young adults, then we are adults, we are middle-aged. These are all social constructions that yeah, and did we're, not and exist And sometimes we're men, then we're women. <laughs> right. Like... The, it, it in some ways it's arbitrary. Yeah. Teenagers yeah. didn't exist before the fifties. Um, children did not exist. Like truly, did not exist before the industrial sure. revolution. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it is our modern life now, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially in like Western society. This is For the sure. way that we Definitely. grow up and have a concept of self. And so I, I think that the doctor, you know if we just think about the doctor and the, the incarnations we've seen different personalities looks different, right? Mm. The rapper is different always, but the personality shifts a little bit, but not by much. There's, there's still like a, an essential doctor-ness and that through line has always been the drive to help others. I think that's why the Capaldi years were so difficult for a lot of people because in a lot of different situations, the 12th doctor refused to help or made decisions that he felt that were brutal, 
but he felt would ultimately help the greater number of people. Mm-hmm. And you had to like the storytelling just pointed us in that direction a lot yeah. more. Um, yeah. It was a very different kind of kindness, wasn't it? In the in the early yeah. part of the Capaldi era, um, which which was difficult to watch at first. I really like that stuff now. It's really grown on me. But yeah, I didn't like it at the time. Yeah, like it, it's hard to watch this character who you admire make a decision that's, you know, gonna leave someone dead. Uh, it's it's not great, you know, but they're still driven by this sense of justice and this mm. sense of wanting to do good. Uh, and it's interesting because in that first episode, Ascension of the Cybermen, we see Brendan, or AKA the, the fake memory of the doctor's yeah. young life. Uh, they ask, why do you want to join the guard? And Brendan says, I want to make a difference, which is such a nice, like, pithy way of describing what the doctor does. Mm. The mm. doctor just goes places and wants to make a difference. Yeah. Didn't Ch- Chris Chibnall come up with a sort of clunky version of that for Woman Who Fell to Earth? What does she say in that? She oh. says something clunky about sorting out fair play throughout. Yes. Is that what she says? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when people need help, I never refuse. I don't right. know if that's a different yeah. episode. Yeah, that is, I think, another line from the from the same episode. Yeah, I prefer that. I think that's quite nice. Um, yeah. But yeah, interesting. I was watching Time Crash the other day with David Tennant oh. and Peter, and Peter mm-hmm. Davison, and there's a bit in that where, um, I mean, obviously that that episode descends into um david tennant talking to peter davison but there's a you know at the start it's more like they're their doctors and um there's a bit where tennant's doctor says oh when i was young i was i was trying too hard to be old and i Mm. think that is i mean obviously it's more literal in terms of the doctor's experience because he literally started life as an old man and is now a woman in her 30s but i think (laughs) every person can relate to that of looking back at your younger self and thinking, gosh, I was, I was trying too hard to be old. And you, you know, you wish as an older person that you, you were able to, to give the wisdom that you have now to your younger yeah. self. It's really, yeah. yeah, I found that really striking. And the truth of that is, even if you were able to convey that message, it, your younger self isn't ready to hear those things. Oh, yeah, your younger self just wouldn't listen. Yeah, that's the most infuriating part. If you could go back in time, <laughs> people always say, don't they? If you could go back in time and, um, and you know, tell, monologue at yourself for five minutes, what mm. would you say? And I, uh, I always think, well, I could say anything, and I don't think my younger self, young people think they know everything, don't they? So they just would not. Oh yeah, they would just close their ears to it. Yeah, uh, which is it's... infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of the the beauty of of life and also identity development totally uh i mean we get it we get it with the doctor a bit in when whenever the doctor meets a an older version of themselves in a multi-doctor story they think that their (laughs) older self is really annoying or yeah or (laughs) difficult or yeah or unlike them in some way do you know what i mean right um (laughs) yeah I do like that the 10th and 11th doctor end up kind of bonding over their shared, uh, you know, silliness. Yeah. Uh, but they do have that initial moment of like, wait, who are you? I don't like the person I've become mm. or, mm. or like looking back and thinking, Ooh, did I really look like that? You know, yeah. like looking at old photographs of yourself. It's, you have to have that moment because if you, if you were to 
be able to meet your future self, it's probably true that you wouldn't recognize who who you are. I have a friend who says, when I'm feeling anxious about things, one of my friends will say, listen, think about your life, you know, five years ago. Does your life now resemble the life that you thought you were going to have in any way at all? Mm-hmm. And usually the answer is no, it does not. And so she'll say, okay, so then stop trying to project what you think is going to happen because yeah. you don't know. Yeah, that's really useful advice. Yeah, <laughs> that's She's super a good useful. friend. <laughs> yeah, I should think that more often, I think. Right. It's, it's a good one. Uh, and I think for, you know, when we look at the doctor and the way that the doctor is able to change, I, I think it's such a beautiful um, model for people because, again, the doctor changes and maybe leans in different directions. I think, you know, you talked about this really well with um, Emma on the show when you talked about you know, they wrote a softer doctor. They wrote a doctor who was um, a little bit, you know, more, um, who was a little bit more passive, which, right, maybe mm. not the best choice for the first female doctor. But the doctor changes, right, in the way that they approach things and their behavior is different. But I don't think the thinking is ever different. And that's so important to to see, I think, that, um that is that there is an essence that remains of oneself. I think that's like probably a, an anxiety that people have just in general, right? Like the anxiety of um, what if I what if I change completely, right? Like something happens in my life, what if I change? Or um, even like an existential fear of what happens when I die. Like, is there a part of me that goes on? Like, what part of me? Um, what would that mean? So. I don't know. I, I just have always liked this idea that sometimes there's just things about you that are inherent in who you are and they're unique to you and finding answers of your origins will not necessarily explain it. Maybe they will, maybe they won't, but you end up relying on yourself. And if you trust in your sense of self, then you can do incredible things. Definitely. I, I agree with all of that. I agree with all of that. I'm going to see the timeless children in a, in a different light now. I'm not necessarily going to enjoy this story anymore, but I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to appreciate that, that element of it um, in, in a totally different way. How, do there's, you think this there's is still a lot of Cybermen stuff? So I, I, I can't do anything yeah, about that. <laughs> yeah. do, you, do you think these revelations are going to affect the doctor's character in any significant way going forward? Or do you think they're not? And that's, and that's, that you know the point of it uh yeah that's exactly it i think i think this is just a, a story to reveal a little bit more to us about who the doctor is in the same way that right stephen stephen moffat was always trying to demystify the doctor or like look at the doctor as myth and think about who who the doctor is from that point of view um russell russell t davies looked at the doctor as myth also but also then looked at kind of like the the internal pain and struggle of you know the different decisions that the doctor had to make in terms of interpersonal relationships and this feels to me like Chibnall kind of staking a claim in thinking about the doctor um as as a sum of their actions and this is the way to explain where all that comes from because you can't really show a person you know you can't really 
present the idea of a person as like this is a person who just does good without showing why they do good yeah i i don't know i think you can i think that's maybe my issue with with the story is that mm. it, it does work as an explanation for the doctor as a real character and and if you are able to imagine the doctor is a real person but for me the doctor isn't a real person and and it, and it, i relate more to the stuff in um in a story like extremists where uh, you know the doctor. Doctor say, oh, when was he says something about like when was being real ever an issue? Or it, it's the it, the doctor as an idea is attractive to me. And yeah. I, rather than the doctor as a as a real person who has explanations for their actions, and mm. it, it feels like I enjoy the doctor more when there's something that it feels like we could all be. Yeah. Rather than rather than a, an individual character that we're able to do a character study of. Doing it, doing mm. a character study of the Doctor doesn't seem productive to me. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, and I think, I think that's true in terms of just being unproductive. I, I think before this, I don't know that you could have done any sort of character study on mm. the Doctor because mm. we didn't have an origin story. Yeah. We really didn't, and and Chibnall wrote one, right? Because yeah, yeah. for for whatever reason, and did it in you know, a lot of superheroes have origin stories. It does fundamentally change the way that a lot of people look at the doctor because mm -hmm. again, if you're if you're interested in the the idea and like the kind of like iconography of what the doctor represents, it, it does shift that. Totally, I think yeah. that you can still hold on to the fact though that the doctor is still a do-gooder who just does good and mm, i don't mm. think it will change i mean I, I doubt that we'll see like flashback episodes to the doctor's youth on Gallifrey. yeah no i certainly i certainly hope not. i wouldn't put it past him but i yeah i yeah. certainly i certainly hope that we're not getting that um yeah it's in, but, it's interesting yeah. for me that obviously we've now got the doctor's sort of had two lifetimes now pre and post memory wipe mm. and it's interesting that we we meet for me, the Joe Martin Doctor doesn't really, doesn't really gel because she exists pre-memory memory wipe apparently, and and right. yet she appears to resemble, in for all intents and purposes, the Doctor that that we the viewers know. When right. we so far we've been led to believe that that Doctor's personality is the result of all of their experiences with all of the companions they've had and all of the adventures they've been on and. Well, who's to say that uh, that incarnation of the Doctor isn't one that's much closer to, like, right before Hartnell, right? Before Hartnell becomes... Or but but the, she seems, she that, seems almost to embody the, the Doctor as we know it more than William Hartnell's Doctor does. Do you know what I mean? Mm, okay, I could see that. I mean, that to me feels like another point in the favor of, like, there's just some... There are certain things that just kind of get ingrained in our personalities mm, not mm. that we can't change but that you know sometimes they're they're just essences of of who we are yeah um going back to your original question though i don't think that it's going to affect the storytelling too much going forward i don't think it's going to be referenced in except in the fact that now it's created a little bit of a mystery like what happened in those years mm, and mm. i I would be shocked if Chibnall didn't go back to it because you can't lay out an entire mystery like that and then just kind of say like, Meh, I'll, I'll leave that there. That for... would be frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. 
And I, um, I mean, we it, it, it would be insulting if we didn't have more um, Fugitive Doctor as well. I think that's necessary. Yeah. Either next season or in the future. And I, I, I don't think you can really return to the Fugitive, fugitive Doctor and explore, explore that character properly without addressing some of this stuff um really yeah but i yeah i think it's criminal if we don't if we don't get to Mm. see her again i think it's yeah it needs yeah personally well so i think he'll return to it in those ways but i don't think that he'll he'll open up a re-exploration of of this like emotional identity stuff because to me that's why it resonated so much with me because those those scenes between the doctor and the master and talking about like, Mm. I didn't know this about my life. I don't know who I am. That's all really specific, like emotional identity work that you can't really do again. I personally feel like it was really rushed, but that's a story for another day. Uh, How would you feel if they did a do over and and did a JJ Abrams and revealed that the master was lying? (laughs) Um, If the master's lying, Hmm. I don't know. I guess it would feel like that's a really elaborate lie. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, true. Um it would, I don't but know. it's a little I mean, yeah, it's a little more elaborate than Kylo Ren's lie, isn't it, for sure? Yeah. But ultimately, right, it's it's a TV show. It's not going to like ruin my life. No, I no, I th- for sure. Yeah, definitely not. I love it cuz I think that like I I feel like I see myself as the doctor more uh-huh. because funnily enough like I've heard you say this now and other friends of mine say like I like that when the doctor isn't special because then I could be the doctor mm. and the funny thing is that I have never felt that I could ever be the doctor because the doctor is extraordinary yeah. but knowing that the doctor has had this um traumatic past mm. and has always felt like this this lack of or has always had a like a little bit of a hole, like something missing. Sure. That's the thing that makes me feel like, oh, I could be the doctor, right? Like I now understand the character more because I know I know a little bit more about what's what's driving them. And that's like a total me thing. Like I, that's something that I need to feel that I can personally relate to a character. But I don't need that at all, actually. Like I don't need to relate to the doctor. I like the show. I like watching the show. I relate to the human characters. Um, the doctor can absolutely be a symbol. And I, I'm i just fascinated by this, this origin story because of what it does. Um, and and the kind of story it tells. And like I said, I think it's a little rushed. I think it's not, I really wish that he had drawn out the conflict a little bit more, like the inner conflict of I need answers. And then coming to that realization of like, oh wait, I don't actually need these answers. That's that's a long process. For, for TV, I can see condensing it, but condensing it to like an exchange of dialogue felt yeah. a little bit short. It feels like there's something that they could have done across the whole season. They could have had yeah. um, the master reveal this stuff to the doctor in mm. part two of skyfall uh, absolutely Spyfall rather and then you your story of the season your backstory is the doctor trying to find out more information about this maybe meeting the fugitive doctor along the way like she did in the in the real version and then at the end of the season do by whatever means coming to this conclusion that, yeah oh actually sort of like how capaldi's doctor at the end of series eight spends the whole season in a more abstract way trying to figure out who he is mm, and whether he's a good mm-hmm. man and then at the end of the season has this all-encompassing revelation that i'm an idiot with a box 
that yeah. there could be a similar moment for Jodie's doctor I feel yeah um, and that would give oh, that would give absolutely. her so much to, more to work with across the season as well mm-hmm. um whereas it whereas it felt very like as we got it it felt very Chibnall trying to trying to be RTD giving Jodie all of this mm. Gallifrey angst and it was like <laughs> it felt it felt very <laughs> dumb do you know what I mean <laughs> it's rushed it's it doesn't I I completely understand why it is not satisfying as a viewer who does not I have all the backstory filled in mm. right like mm. in me I know what gets you from point A to B to C yeah so I didn't need that because I already have it yeah but Absolutely. As a viewer who does not relate to that in mm-hmm. some way or who maybe didn't see it, yeah, it's rushed and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't feel emotionally fulfilling at all. Mm-hmm. For sure. I cry when I watch it because I I'm I moved. But that doesn't mean that doesn't make it good writing. It just means that yeah. I found something in it that I think is, you know, um that resonates with me. Definitely, definitely. And this but there's no um that's no bad thing either. That's that's right, still exactly. super duper valuable. Um and yeah, definitely something to the epi- for the uh, something that yeah that the episode does well. Yeah, um, well, it's it's valuable to me. I don't know how valuable it is to anybody else. But there's bound to have been <laughs> there's bound to have been other people who uh, had a similar had a similar response to it. Um, if if they exist sure. and if you are listening, please get in touch with me because I'm dying to know if anybody else feels like this, this is why it's an unpopular opinion. I truly have not heard from anyone who is like, wow, yes, I, I felt the same way watching it. Um, the closest I got was somebody on Twitter. Cause I was tweeting about this the night that it aired. Somebody on Twitter said, Oh wow, I'm adopted. I didn't know you were adopted, but didn't necessarily say what like they thought about the episode. So whether they necessarily resonated with it in, in yeah. the same way. Cause I really um, want to talk to people about that. Yeah. Yeah. That so yeah, if you do if you're listening to this and you and you felt the same way as, as Joy, get in touch with her <laughs> because uh, I'm sure you'd love to hear it. Yeah. Um yeah. Great. Well thank you so much for talking to me, uh Joy. I really appreciate it. I, I thank you so much for inviting me because I don't think that I realized how much I had still been stewing on this <laughs> since it aired. So this was really fun. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, it was great to hear your thoughts. Where can people find you on Twitter and where can people listen to your various um, podcasts uh, about Doctor Who? Sure. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Inquiring Joy. And um, from there in my bio, you will find links to the podcast that I do um, at Reality Bomb PC and at Five Years Rapid. Fantastic. And you can follow the podcast, uh, this podcast on Twitter, uh, as usual, at Galactic Yo Yo Pod. And you can follow me on Twitter at Molly underscore Martian. Uh, and you can email the podcast at galatioyopod at gmail.com uh, if you want to as well. Um, but uh, until next time, thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.